I'm Erin Barnes, and this is Inside College Admissions, a podcast presented by SCORE. On today's episode, Strategic Advisor to SCORE, Peter Van Buskirk, is joined by Linnell Engelmeyer of the Alexander Hamilton Scholars and Vero Duffins, the Director of Financial Aid at Swarthmore College. Their conversation will touch on all things financial aid. Without further ado, I'll hand it over to Peter. Welcome to Inside College Admission. My name is Peter Van Buskirk, and I'm joined today by good friends Barrow Duffins and Lanelle Engelmeyer for a conversation about money and college financing your education. Welcome, Barrow and Lanelle. Thank you. Thank you, Peter. It's good to have you with us today. As the school year gets started for young people in high school, invariably they're, they're focused on trying to get the job done in the classroom in high school. But for many, especially high school seniors, the look is sort of over the horizon now to college and uh, getting college applications out. And uh, many are beginning to imagine where they'll be starting in college a year from now. Many are also asking some pretty important questions about how am I gonna afford this? And what we'd like to do today is uh, provide some insight uh, into the, not just the college going process, but the college financing process. And I'm particularly interested in the perspectives that you bring. I'd like uh, for our, our listeners, if, if I could get just a little bit more of a, an introduction from each of you. Varo, you're director of uh, financial aid at Swarthmore College. What's your Reader's Digest version of your pathway to, to the work that you're doing right now? Well, Peter, as you know, I started in higher education in 1995. I was an admissions professional, admissions counselor at Elizabethtown College for a year before a dean of admissions at Franklin and Marshall College, you, hired me to F&M, where I served in the admissions office there for uh, the better part of a decade before I moved into financial aid in 2004. I was at F&M in financial aid and left there as a senior associate director. And then I became a director of financial aid here at Swarthmore College uh, about six and a half years ago. So that's, that's been my pathway in terms of, you know, so I have experience both from the admissions side of things at a private institution as well as financial aid. Which is fairly unique these days. Uh, there are folks who are either admission officers or financial aid officers, but you bring two perspectives into one, which is great. And Linnell, I know that you had your start on the college side as well in, in financial aid. Can you help us understand a little bit more about what you're doing? In particular, you're now a program advisor for the Alexander Hamilton Scholars Program. Is that correct? That is correct. And uh, like Vero, I have a little bit of experience on both sides of the desk. I worked as an admissions tour guide as an undergraduate. And the person that I worked for said to me, there's a job in financial aid at a small liberal arts school, Lebanon Valley College. And the sole requirement for their hiring that position was that I had to not make people cry. I took that job. I went on to become their director of financial aid. Life circumstances caused a move, and I started doing some work in admissions, where I also started volunteering using my financial aid background to help explain the process to kids from from low-income backgrounds who were less likely to go to college. That volunteer work is eventually what brought me to Hamilton Scholars, which is a national nonprofit that serves mostly first-gen low-income students are real civic change makers. And so they are not only low income, but often with very complicated financial circumstances. And so I'm the person that will help them navigate that and explain it to financial aid officers so that they get to see the most accurate picture of that family. 
You've, you've piqued my curiosity, though. Don't make people cry. What's that all about? Well, so as you can imagine, financial aid is a, a really difficult, often painful subject for families. You're disclosing very private information to somebody you've never met before, which is a little unnerving. You can never give somebody enough money, so you kind of already start out at a deficit in that relationship. And how do you explain what is essentially a foreign language to somebody and make them feel good about what you can do for them as opposed to what you can't do for them? And so it really became about kind of making sure that you abided by federal legislation but also building relationships with families and letting them know that you had their best interest at heart. Very good. And I know from your experience and Vero from yours as well, probably start fielding questions from families about financial aid well before they apply for admission. Is, is that an open door that, that you, Vero, that you extend to families or, or does the mystery continue right up until the point where they have to send in applications? Do you engage in any kind of pre-application counseling with, with families? We do. And, you know, not every college does that. Not every college is in a position to do it. I would say that colleges and universities may approach that differently. There are some tools online that help with that and that have been around now by federal legislation for about 10 years, believe it or not, mm -hmm. uh, actually 10 years coming up this fall. So there are ways to approach that. But in terms of uh, general inquiries that we receive from families, that is something that we do the same way it, as, as it works with admissions. And as I'm sure Liddell would agree that families are beginning that process earlier and earlier every year. So it's not unusual for us to obviously be talking to families who are juniors, uh, certainly seniors in high school. We have had families that have contacted our office that have children even younger, and some very young, just because they're just very curious as to how this process goes. And they hear a lot on the radio and, and television and read a lot on the web and sometimes just follow in with very general inquiries. So that is obviously, yeah, something that we do and encourage that families do prior to the point that they would apply and throughout and during that. So process. it's not too, never too early to really get started in the thought process and, and ed educating yourself about financial aid. Now, a lot of times families look at, at colleges from a sort of social emotional point of view and get excited about dream schools. And the, the second look is the one that, that introduces them to the price tag. And folks are saying, well, <laughs> we can't afford that. I mean, there's schools that are costing anywhere from, you know, 30000 to $70,000. How, how can a family tell whether or not they're supposed to be able to pay all of the amount or whether there might be assistance available to them? And I'd like each of you to chime in on this, uh, Vero first. Well, you know, as I said, there are some tools online that allow families to do that. The net price calculator legislation put in the end of October, 2011 you know, required institutions that are uh, Title IV assistance, meaning that they receive some sort of federal assistance for the institution to have that available on their website. Families are supposed to be able to go to the main website, put in the words net price calculator, and it should take them to a place on the website to actually fill that out. Not all net price calculators are the same. They don't always use the same software. They don't always ask the same questions. They are designed and required to give families um, what their likely net price or net cost is going to be, which is the, the annual total cost minus any aid that does not need to be repaid, essentially, is, is what that means. And they are garbage in, garbage out. 
pieces of, of software. So um, they are as good as the information that's put into them. Most colleges and universities do not adhere to uh, whatever decision they have on the net price calculator is actually going to be the decision. But to the point of your question, does it give families a better sense and at least put them in a ballpark or maybe even the right neighborhood? Yes, I would say so. And, and again, it, it also depends on the accuracy of the net price calculator to the actual need analysis that the Office of Financial Aid will actually employ. Yeah. Well, Nell, your thoughts? I would tell you the same thing that Vera just told you to use the net price calculators, but I actually put a step before that when I'm talking to families. I, I suggest that they use uh, what's called an expected family contribution or EFC calculator. If you just Google EFC calculator or expected family contribution calculator, you'll come up with it. And it is a mo uh, mock-up or, or a uh, replica of the federal financial aid formula. And it tells you what the federal government will likely think your family can pay. And again, I use the same sort of little asterisk that Pharaoh uses that the information that comes out is as good as the information that goes in. But the reason I like that as a precursor to the net price calculator is that the amount of aid a school gives you can vary literally from school to school. I think it's important to have as a barometer what the government thinks your family can pay, and then look at what the net price calculator will give you and see how closely those two can match. Well, this is really interesting. As much clarity as there is fog in the situation right now, and what I'm, what I'm hearing is that, that there are opportunities for families to kind of get some preview of, of what their expected contribution will be. However, it's my understanding that there are two methodologies that come into play. One is the free application for federal student aid, a federal document, and the other is the college scholarship service profile, which is used by many of the, the selected private colleges in the country. So, Linnell, can you give us a sense of, of what those two animals are all about, How where they come into play for, for families looking at financial aid? So every school in the country, every school, college or university in the country that offers any kind of federal aid uses the FAFSA, the Free Application for Federal Student Aid, to determine a family's expected family contribution, what that family can pay. So basically, anybody going to college is filling out the FAFSA. Um, some colleges, particularly those schools that give out a very significant amount of their own institutional funding, largely private institutions, decided that that wasn't quite enough information from them, and they wanted a more robust picture of a family's financial health. And so they started using the CSS profile, which is a deeper dive into a family's finances. So now we've got two methodologies. Kind of walk us through the, the FAFSA timeline here. Families can complete the FAFSA very soon if they're seniors in high school. And the families, what kind of information do they get back when they complete the FAFSA? So the results from completing the FAFSA are what's called an EFC, expected family contribution. But actually, when you hit submit, when you file the FAFSA electronically and you hit submit, there it comes up on your screen a page that says print this document. And on that, it will tell you right exactly what your expected family contribution is. So you know almost immediately once you hit send. I'm very careful to tell families, this is what the government thinks you can pay. 
Um, and the distinction I make is that that is not necessarily what the institution thinks that you can pay. At schools that don't require the CSS profile, it is sometimes what you'll pay, uh, sometimes not. But for schools that require the CSS profile, those two numbers, the expected family contribution from the FAFSA versus the contribution that's determined from the CSS profile often differ because different variables are used. If, if I could interrupt then, Vera, I, I kind of like to get a sense from you because as a representative of a private institution, the, the profile becomes important in your consideration. How, how and when should families be addressing the, the profile application? Well, the profile application as of a few years ago actually became available uh, at the same time as the FAFSA, which is October 1 uh, of every year. And the profile is designed you know, by the College Board. It, it is a tool that private colleges and universities use so that we are in a better position to be able to offer more of our own institutional aid grant to families who would qualify for more need above what federal assistance would consist of. And so we do ask more questions than the FAFSA in, in most cases. Um, and we ask the questions because uh, the, the questions that we are asking are related to the utilization of our own funds, our own private institutional funds. Um, and as I said, in most cases, in all cases that I know, those funds are utilized for additional grant and or scholarship money. So engaging in the profile and the FAFSA essentially at the, at the same time is probably a really good idea. It's also a good idea in terms of how the information is reported from the asset side of what families report. So there are a lot of you know, uh, pieces to this that are probably down in the weeds, Peter, but I, I think um, it's important for families to know that in most cases, as students are working on the application process, parents uh, are often working on the financial aid process. And in a lot of cases, parents and students are, are working together on both at certain points as well. I think that, that, that there's the potential here for some confusion among families, because if they complete the FAFSA early in the fall, and as Linnell suggests, they get an immediate response with the student aid report, uh, they see a number. Uh, from the government. The government says we should be able to contribute this amount. Uh, and whether they like it or not, they get used to it and they carry that number around in their head. When they complete the profile, do they get any indication of, of what that, that profile report suggests about their expected contribution? Well, no, and, the, and, and there's, there's a reason for that. The federal process and the FAFSA is actually going through the federal government. We, we as colleges and universities simply act as stewards to their, their funds. Mm -hmm. And so they are provided with what used to be called an EFC. That soon will become a student aid index, which is essentially what it is. And part of the reason that that change is being made is that it is not considered an actual expected family contribution. It actually plays to that confusion that you're talking about. Mm -hmm. it, is, it is a guide. And in many ways, it's a guide in terms of the level of um, demonstrated need, but it is according to the federal methodology. Mm -hmm. The profile determines around an institutional methodology, which, of course, varies from institution to institution. And uh, I don't think that there's any more confusion to that than there is in the merit scholarship process that occurs in admissions offices from one institution to another, or certainly within athletics programs and things like that. It's just yet another institutional 
specific uh, indicator throughout the process. So at the end of the day, the decision that families will receive in terms of the profile is actually going to be the financial aid decision, presuming that the, that the student has been admitted to the college or the university. But, but isn't it possible, if not the case in many instances, where an institution can, can choose between justifying financial aid for a student based on the profile or the FAFSA, uh, depending on the circumstances that relate to that particular student? Or is it always going to be the, the profile that, that rules the day? In most cases, institutions that require both the FAFSA and the profile are working with information from both right. so that they can put together the optimal package for a student. The, the FAFSA and the federal methodology will, will determine how much of federal assistance will go into that package. The profile is determining how much of institutional grant aid usually will go into that package as well. And so the combination of both is really designed to give the most accurate, fuller picture for a family who's looking at, in this case, uh, a, a private institution. Institutions that don't require the profile and require only the FAFSA or making different kinds of decisions and the aid that they're offering in many cases is federal and state aid. They may offer non-need-based additional institutional mm -hmm. grant that's through uh, talent or athletics or some other form of merit, um, but that is not usually a, a need-based uh, determination. Is it safe to say then in the discussion about the FAFSA and the profile, and, and we'll, we'll move on from this in just a moment, was it safe to say that, that when an institution has information from both at its disposal, that the, the ultimate decision about how to assist a student is a reflection of the institution's values and the extent to which the institution values that particular student? Yes, I guess you could say that. And some of that value begins in the admissions office and whether or not the student is going to be admitted to begin with. The other side of the value piece is, I, I, I don't know if it's a value judgment placed on each student individually, but uh, it's really geared around the affordability of the institution. And the need analysis in the aggregate uh, is, is really set up to address that. You know, because it's, and that is the reason that the profile exists in the way that it does, because it allows, again, private colleges and universities to utilize their own endowed resources very generously to whatever extent they can be generous, given the population of students that they have on campus. Sure. Linnell, your thoughts? Um, the only thing I really wanted to add to that is that I had said earlier that everybody applying for financial aid fills out the FAFSA. Not everybody needs to fill out the CSS profile, or they don't need to fill it out for every school that they're applying to. And since the family or the student does pay for every school they release CSS profile data to, I think it's really important for families to check on each individual school's website to see, does the school require the CSS profile and only list those schools? And, and whatever is required, best not to wait in, in terms of completing the forms. Now, Lena, I'm wondering if, if you could help us understand a bit of the FAFSA application scenario. A few years ago, the federal government changed the, the year of information, the fiscal year of information used in its analysis. Uh, and, and there's something now that people in the business call the prior prior year. What's that all about? 
Um, that is my favorite federal government-ism, the prior, prior year. One of the criticisms of the financial aid application process is that it occurred very late. And it was giving families very little time to make a well-informed choice about a college, especially incorporating financial, a financial aid package. And so it became really important to back that process up a little bit. The problem is that if you're using the tax return prior to the year your student starts college, you can only back it up so much because you don't have your tax return done yet. And so the government made the decision to use the tax return from two years ago or the prior prior year uh, so that the FAFSA application could open October 1st. And you would, in almost all cases, have your tax return completed from two years prior to allow you to apply for financial aid. There's one small issue with that that I think particularly COVID has brought a, a light to. And that is your tax return from two years ago may not be an accurate indicator of what you're earning today. And what happens if you were laid off or a parent was laid off? What happens if there was significant loss of overtime uh, or any other circumstance that makes your tax return from two years ago no longer particularly indicative of your family's financial circumstances? And in that case, I always encourage students to write a detailed letter, brief but detailed letter, to the financial aid offices in question and explain using dates, dollar amounts and a short narrative to explain the difference between your financial situation today and your financial situation as reflected on that tax return from two years ago. And that's great. And, and I think that, that when we talk about prior prior, there's always a concern that, that families' financial circumstances can change fairly dramatically, but never more so than in the last couple of years. Vera, when, when those letters, those conversations come to your attention, what happens next? I mean, is it the case that in every situation you're able to automatically change the data in, in terms of your need analysis? I think one of the key uh, pieces to filing an appeal, which is what some families call it uh, and some institutions call it, or uh, a request for reconsideration, which we call it in my office. We don't call it negotiation though, do we? No, not necessarily. <laughs> but the I think the key piece to that is, is that there, there has been a change that is beyond uh, the family's control that has impacted the family financially. And one thing, you know, with, with the prior, prior year when that came into effect, that is one of the things that, of course, allowed the uh, FAFSA process to be released and uh, to families to apply to earlier. Um, because, you know, having a, a tax year that was actually already complete and in this case should have been completed by several months, allows the family to actually complete the FAFSA with information that is already settled. In a lot of cases, uh, there are changes, you know, in families' income from one year to the next. I've found that the most dramatic changes usually result from something that has impacted the family, and it could be a job loss or, you know, something else that's pretty traumatic to the family, and a request for reconsideration makes sense. I think general normal changes and, and certainly increases or decreases in more recent income, I'm not sure that that's actually going to result in significant changes to a financial aid decision. And so it may or may not behoove the family, 
to appeal on that basis. In fact, in some cases, um, it may just behoove the family to know that in the following year, when their son or daughter applies, that that new income will actually be accounted for uh, at that point in time. So it, it is a judgment call. It's also one of those things that I think is important for your families to understand that increases and decreases in income and assets uh, are not dollar for dollar. So it's not as if somebody you know uh, loses $10,000 of income or makes an additional $10,000 of income, that that's going to change the aid decision, $10,000. It, it just simply doesn't work that way. So um, it's more complex and it's more layered than that, but to the benefit uh, for the family. Um, so filing an appeal or a, re a request for reconsideration is, is really you know, a choice that the family can make. And then it's the choice of the institution as to how they want to address it. Another key takeaway since, since I've known you, Peter, for the better part of 30 years, I know you'll probably go with the next question, you know, how do institutions actually allow families to do this? And that varies as well. Linnell is correct. I mean, the advice she's giving to families to um, put together a, a really brief, detailed narrative that has a, a good timeline and good data and accurate figures in it is important. And institutions uh, will receive that in different ways. We have on our website in my office at Swarthmore uh, an actual web page and a link that families can request a, re a reconsideration. They don't need a special uh, access code to do that. It, they just fill out a form and that form is then sent to my office and then we actually walk them through the next uh, stages of the process. It's, it's actually, we've made it pretty easy for families to do that. All right, so what we're establishing now is that there are a number of different processes that families need to pass through in order to determine whether they might receive any kind of assistance uh, from an institution and that if the information that they get back from the institution doesn't quite square with their own reality, uh, their own expectations, that there are opportunities for the families to reach back out to the institutions and have conversations. So correct me if I'm wrong, it's important for families to understand that if they have concerns, that they articulate them in the present rather than waiting. And I think a lot of times families get frustrated by this process and they feel a little intimidated by it that they'll, they'll put off and put off and put off. And then finally, what, what happens, Vera, when you get the concern from the, the family about the financial aid award? The student's been admitted, and, and now it's uh, the middle of May, and you get that phone call. Does that make it a little complicated? Well, in, in most cases, if it's the middle of May, they've, they've probably already committed, and they've either committed to our institution or they've committed to another institution. So or they could be students that are you know, on the wait list at other institutions. So there are some complexities that are sort of beyond sure. uh, the scope of, of our control. But again, you know, I, I, I think the easiest thing to keep in mind for families is that should something happen to your family that is beyond your control, that impacts uh, particularly your, your, your parents' access to resources, their income or their assets, and you have proper documentation for that, um, that is the time to reach out to the financial aid office. And colleges and universities will handle that uh, each in each in different ways. And I think that that is probably the best advice to pass on, that there is no standardization to this process, no more than there is no standardization to the admissions process and the admissions application process. So it, it we vary in that, in that piece as well as any other institution. Well, and that probably then is good explanation for why if a student applies to, to six schools, and, and applies for financial aid to six schools, that there might be six different solutions from each school with regard to what financial aid might look like. Now, I, I'd, I'd like to uh, kind of reframe a question a little bit here. 
I hear frequently from families that they want to know, is there, a, is there an income threshold for eligibility for financial aid? In other words, if you earn beyond so much, uh, does that mean that you can't get it? Or how, how far low does our income have to be? And well, now I'm going to give you the first shot at this. I, I, I think I understand where we'll go with it because there's a, a lot of variability here. But, but still, how do we address the question? What is the income threshold? I always address that question by not answering that question with a number, um, which is to say that there isn't necessarily one because the federal formula is so incredibly complicated that I actually did a hand calculation of it in my 25 year career one time. And that was when I was brand new and I went to a financial aid educational workshop for beginners and uh, they made us do a hand calculation so that we understood it. And it was the last time I ever did it because it's computerized and it's complicated. Uh, there are variables included in the calculation that are things like family size, age of the older parent, and, and things that really can affect the contribution outside of a family's income. The formula is income heavy, um, but there are clearly other other variables. How many homes do you own? Uh, what cars and that? I mean, the, the, there's a look at lifestyle also. I would imagine, it's particularly through the the profile. Particularly through the CSS profile, not lifestyle. I think doesn't rear its head as much on the FAFSA, but certainly on the CSS profile and institutions. The the CSS profile is actually not one form. It is a repository of questions, some of which are standardized across all schools, but then schools actually have the ability to differentiate questions that they themselves want. So for example, Swarthmore might choose not to ask you what kind of car you're driving, what kind of make and model and how many you have, uh, but another institution that is maybe a peer institution of Swarthmore might ask that question. And so, you know, uh, Vero spoke about kind of, this is not a completely standardized process. And it is because institutions can define some of their questions based on their own institutional values, based on their own institutional availability of funds and things like that. So it's a pretty complicated question. So, so Vero, it's, it's possible then that a family with uh, $100,000 of uh, income could show, quote unquote, no need uh, a family with $250,000 of income, I'm, I'm being intentional here, could show that they, they have some need depending on other factors that involved. Is that correct? Yeah, I mean, one, I, I would say that one of the fundamental driving factors of the need analysis is uh, family size and the number of children, the number of children attending college. The, one of the questions that I ask at, at financial aid nights, one of the sort of program exercises that I've done with colleagues of mine uh, in the profession and on campus is really rooted in sort of natural calculus that we all do, um, particularly if, if you're a parent. So if you imagine, you know, two families uh, of a similar income and one family is a family of three, presumably two parents and an only child going to college, another family down the street who has the exact same income as that family, but they're a family of six, uh, two parents, four kids. And let's say two of the kids are twins and there's another one and three of their four kids are in college at the same time. You know, do those families, are those families making the same financial decisions day to day? 
will those families face the same financial decisions uh, in the upcoming academic year in terms of college? And if you run through that exercise on your own while you're sitting at home, literally just watching TV or you know, outside mowing the lawn, you will come to that calculus pretty quickly. And what the need analysis essentially does is it, it literally breaks that calculus into finer parts. But this is an exercise that I think literally every person can do, uh, whether you are a parent or a student going through the process. So what Linnell said is exactly correct. No, I, uh, we don't say that there is an absolute threshold where you do or do not qualify for aid. There are incomes uh, that might leave some people surprised that they would qualify for aid and the other way around. But we see some very large families in this process with the number of kids in college, and we see families that are uh, considered very small uh, with only one child in college. And so how those resources are utilized against that family size and against the children and the children in college is really what the point of the need analysis does, among other things. At the end of the day, then, there will be different perceptions with regard to what need is. There's the institution's perception, the government's perception, the family's perception. And I, I suspect the, that you encounter as many conversations with families about not need-based, what do we, what, what do we deserve, deserve because we need it, but what can we get because we want it? And, and uh, we won't go down that, <laughs> that road today about what want-based aid would be, but that, that's a different kind of conversation, I would imagine. Uh, we have just a little bit of time left, and, and I'd like to address the, the issue of debt now, because I, there's an awful lot of talk in our country and in political circles about the debt that is collectively uh, attributed to students in our country right now. What is the, the role of debt here? I mean, I know that both of you have talked earlier about how the federal government contributes funding to college for students uh, in the form of grants and loans. Uh, and then of course there are private loans, et cetera. But just off the top, and I'd like each of you to comment on this, what, what do you think is a reasonable amount of debt or, uh, that, that a family might expect to look at over the course of four years, not just one year, but four years for an undergraduate education? Lenell, do you wanna give that a shot first? I think that debt is not unreasonable in many situations. I don't subscribe to the theory that all debt is bad debt, um, but I think that there is a limit to it. I think a college education is an investment with an ROI, with a return. And, and you know, lots of studies show that you will earn a multiple of what you might earn with only a high school diploma as you go up in educational attainment. And if it, if it requires some debt to make that investment, I think the payoff could be great. I think that the federal direct student loan, uh, formerly the Stafford loan, has loan limits to it for undergraduates. And I think that if an undergraduate took the maximum loan limit each year for four years, I would tell you that I don't think that that is unreasonable debt. For me, it's where students and families talk about a certain school and attending a certain school at any cost and borrowing at any level. That really, really scares me and where um, the numbers start to accrue into pretty staggering figures. And so I've, I've sometimes told families when they say to me, well, where can I borrow more money? You know, I tell them we can look outside of the federal direct student loan program. But I actually tell them that there are calculators for loan repayment and so that they can then look at what a monthly payment might look like. 
And when you break it down into that level, um, I think it makes it much more real. And when you start talking about a six or $800 loan payment right out of college, um, my hope is that it gives a family pause. I think if you look at the, the loan limits for the undergraduate federal direct student loan, those are not unreasonable and maybe a good investment in, in the student. Well, and again, as a parent, and you've been a parent in this process as well, you don't want your child to come out of college saddled by a lot of loan. But to your point, there may be a reasonable amount. Now you talked about the federal direct uh, maximum amounts. Is that an, a, a total over four years in the neighborhood of about $30,000, 25 to 30? So there's actually a yearly maximum uh, mm -hmm. based on class year. The thought being that the longer you've persisted through college, the more likely you are to graduate and the more likely you are to be able to repay the loan. It's 3,500 freshman year, 4,500 sophomore year, 5,500 junior year, and again, 5,500 senior year. So you're somewhere between 20 and $25,000 for that. There are ways to borrow a little bit more under that, but but that's the basic answer. Very good. And, and Vero, I know at Swarthmore, the institution makes it a practice, correct me if I'm wrong, to provide financial aid that does not include loans to the, the students. A, am I correct in that? And B, that doesn't preclude a student from still choosing to take out a loan in meeting costs. And I, I love the way you frame the second part of that question, Peter, because that's, that's very important. We are known as a loan-free institution, which means that as we determine a student's need, the aid decision that we provide, it consists of grant, need-based grant, and a work expectation, campus work job expectation. We do not meet that need or fulfill that need with the expectation of loan. And that, of course, is to the benefit of the student. To say it more candidly, uh, whatever loan expectation they would have normally had that would have been filled in with federal loan, we actually replace with our own institutional aid grant. But to the second point of what you said, yes, it does not preclude students from borrowing loan. And our students who do borrow loans, and, and we do have some that do that, um, do it in terms of adding additional flexibility to their educational experience, because now they're borrowing a loan that's not necessarily expected to go toward paying the actual uh, student account balance, but it could actually go toward helping the family uh, and maybe even lessening the burden on the parent contribution as well. So in terms of a reasonable debt load, um, you know, I, I can't really say it any better than Linnell just put it. It's, you know, I think it varies from student to student. It really is a, a cost value judgment for the student and for the family and whatever it is that they feel comfortable doing. What one student and or family will feel comfortable borrowing may not be the same that another family would do. You know, as Linnell said, it's the, the subsidized amounts over four years. The standard amounts that a, a student would receive in federal loan into an aid decision would be about $19,000 they'd have the option to borrow or to be given an additional $2,000 each year, you know, which takes it to just under 30,000. And according to, you know, the, the project on student debt, which is another website that your families may want to look at, the Institute for College Access and Success, the TICAS, they actually give some really good data and some longitudinal data on student debt, um, institution by institution type, and also by state. You know, but the, the average that they say on their website is that more than six in 10 college seniors who graduated from public and private nonprofit colleges in 2019 had student loan debt 
and they owed an average of $28,950. So, you know, those are good figures for, for families if they just want to get a sense of the averages. But as one of my colleagues here at the college says, no, nobody is average. And so, you know, you have to think about the context of where you fall within that. And at the end of the day, like everything else, even with admissions, um, it really is a very personal choice. And what, what fits and works for one student and family may not work with another. Uh, it really depends on, you know, what your goals and objectives are. And, you know, the other thing with debt is for many students, this will be the first debt that they may incur. Uh, and as, as all of us in the room who are over the age of 25 uh, know um, that it probably won't be the last uh, amount of debt and, and wise investment that they make. So I definitely champion everything that Linnell said in terms of the investment piece. I think that's really smart advice. Excellent. As we get to the end of our segment here, I want to give each of you an opportunity to uh, offer some parting thoughts, advice to families as they begin to engage in, in the uh, financial aid process associated with college admission. Uh, so, Linnell, do you want to go first? Sure. I think my advice would be staying organized is paramount. I tell all my students, use your calendar, use the reminders on your phone calendar so that you don't miss dates and deadlines because, you know, in financial aid, money is finite and being late is, is, can be a real problem. Make sure you know what each school requires, uh, which is a little bit of a treasure hunt to figure out. Keep it organized and, and really make sure you check off each box. And finally, just remember that you're a consumer in this process, not, not a victim of it. And so it means that you're allowed to call a financial aid office and ask questions. If you don't understand something, if you don't understand how to answer a question, you're allowed to call and ask. Very good. Vero? I, I think it's all great advice. Uh, and I would, I would overlap with Linnell on some of those pieces. The, I guess in terms of uh, framing the beginning of the approach to the process of financial aid is to begin with yourself and your family and to understand from the beginning sort of uh, where you feel like your points of affordability or lack of affordability may be. Uh, that's a long way of saying, you know, if, if you feel like there is a price, an out-of-pocket price point that is really beyond your reach, that may be something to talk about. It doesn't necessarily mean that it should dissuade you from pursuing an institution in terms of your interest, but it may be something to talk about. In terms of students who have very special, unique circumstances, and they may have some concerns about how to navigate the process because you know, there could be aspects of their situation that they feel are unique or personal uh, or don't fit neatly into all the boxes. Um, I would say, as Linnell said, to really get organized around your information. One of the things that uh, a very wise Dean of Admission taught me years ago, he might even be the one asking me this question, is that you really have to know your story. And I think you know, a brief, detailed, one-page narrative, particularly if you have special circumstances, to actually write that down and flush that out in terms of dates and figures and things that are accurate. It's a really good way just to do sort of a self-battery, a self-introspection, so that you understand your situation, your family situation. The other side of, of this that I think is very key, and Linnell touched on this earlier, which I think was really smart, you are providing, you as a student, as a family, you are providing very 
personal, confidential information to complete strangers. And unfortunately, there really isn't another way to do that process. And I think having some sense of trust in the institution and knowing that financial aid offices at colleges and universities have been doing this for quite a long time, we are very adept at uh, keeping inf information confidential, private, secure. But there's also the other side of trust, which is in that narrative and things that you're talking to and about yourself, to know that the professionals in that office are handling that information with great care. And I can assure you that they are. And that in almost all cases, I would imagine that you should really not feel too overly concerned with sharing that information. The degree to which you share the information, of course, is up to you. Which leads me to my last point, which is to be responsive to the financial aid office. If they make requests for additional information, it is not to throw you off. It's not because they believe that you are not telling the truth. Oftentimes, it's just for a simple clarification. The more responsive you are to those requests, the easier the process goes for you and the faster it will go for you. Because, and I will end here, the most important thing is that when you get that wonderful letter that you've been admitted to the college or university that you've applied to. One thing you definitely want to have that comes along with that letter or soon after is some semblance of a financial aid decision so that you can at least make a sound and wise decision when it comes to whether or not you wish to enroll at that institution. Great advice. Thank you both, Linnell and Vera. I think that if folks have been able to follow this conversation all the way through, you, you should be coming away with a sense of confidence that the, the road to college can be facilitated with financial aid. The, the, the cost and financial aid doesn't have to be a barrier, but it can be a pathway. And uh, we've just heard from two superb financial aid professionals about how this process can work for you. Again, a great session. Thank you, Linnell. Thank you, Vero. And I hope everyone who's listened in is a, coming away with this now with a, a good sense of how to be organized and how to carry forward in, in the application process. That's it for today. I uh, want to thank you for joining us. Be safe until the next time. Take care. A special thanks to Peter Van Buskirk for joining us in this conversation today. If you want to hear more from Peter, you can find his content in the blog section of our website and on YouTube where his webinars and presentations are hosted. If you want to learn more about SCORE, go to SCORE.com. That's S-C-O-I-R.com. We'll link to that in the show notes and be sure to follow us on Instagram at SCORE Inc. That concludes our conversation today. If you like what you heard, please subscribe, rate, and review this episode. Thanks so much for listening.